I love my dog, but he is objectively an ugly mutt. When he was a puppy, though, he was super cute. And the interesting thing is that all of the weird features he has which make him now an ugly mutt were things which made him cute when he was a puppy. Uh, one of my wife's co-workers defined cuteness as when things are smaller than they should be. A tiny handbag, cute. A tiny home, cute. A tiny dog, even one which will become an ugly full-size dog, cute. Uh, the reality, though, is that my dog did not stay tiny, and so he did not stay cute. You know, I used to walk him as a puppy, and as I went, everyone would ooh and aww and want to come and pet him. And as a full-grown dog, that's just not the case. Uh, in fact, one time I was, I was walking him here in Medfield and came across another couple walking their dog, and as is customary in doggy etiquette, I said, hey, my dog's friendly, and I walked him over to go meet their dog. Well, the woman pulled her dog back and said, our dog is in heat, and we don't want that breed. <laughs> Not making that up. It, it was like I was honored to see that level of snobbery presented before me. Suffice to say, my dog is uh, not cute anymore. Well, everybody loves baby Jesus, even non-Christians. He's cute. Uh, we love to go to Christmas pageants. We love our nativity scenes. We love singing about baby Jesus. But I would put forward that for many who celebrate Christmas... Their love for baby Jesus is a superficial love. They love babies and they love Christmas. And if baby Jesus is a reason to celebrate Christmas, then they love cute little baby Jesus too. There are two problems with this approach to Christmas. Number one, this baby boy did not stay in the manger. Jesus grew up and grown up Jesus is not cute anymore. Number two, there is no reason to celebrate the baby of the manger apart from the work he accomplished as an adult. Why do we distinguish this baby from the billions of other babies born throughout history? The reality is that many who love baby Jesus want nothing to do with the grown-up Jesus of the Bible. Now, let me be clear, I do not want to be uh, that grumpy old man yelling at you for having a light-up sleigh on your roof or for leaving cookies and milk out on Christmas Eve. Although I will say your cookies would be put to better use if you dropped them off at your pastor's house. <laughs> what I do want to do over the next few weeks is consider why is it that we as Christians should get excited about the Incarnation? Why is it that we should get excited about God becoming a man, being born of a virgin as a baby? I want to answer, why is it that we should love sweet little baby Jesus? And we'll do this by looking at three traditional Advent themes. Yes, I know Advent is four weeks long, but I was out of town. Three themes, peace, love, and joy. And in our text today, Jesus was called the Prince of Peace. He is the one who brings peace. 
And so the question I want to answer this morning is, how is it that Jesus brings peace? So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we read that one more time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered this morning for one reason and one reason of only. Because we love you and we want to see you glorified among us. And so God, we pray that that would be accomplished through our entire service. But even now, particularly as I open your word, Lord, would you be glorified? Would you fill me with your spirit to preach in your power and not in my own? And may the truth of your word fill all of our hearts with joy and a peace that transcends understanding. Because you are God. The God who loves sinners like us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you're following along in your bulletin, two points today. First one is this, that Jesus brings peace with God. The first thing we might say about peace is that it is something which every sane individual desires. We all want to live at peace. We all want inner peace. We all want world peace. And yet we have thousands of years of recorded human history in which peace has been sought. And yet we're no closer to real peace than we were thousands of years ago. Conflict is an ever-present reality, and even the greatest periods of international peace achieved by the greatest minds and councils of nations throughout history, those periods have also been periods rife with oppression, injustice, and fear. In the last 75 years or so since the end of World War II, we in the West have enjoyed a period of peace and prosperity in the form of an absence of conflict on our own land. And yet even in the West, it would be difficult to describe this period as peaceful. The Cold War cast a dark shadow of fear upon entire nations. Violent crime, racism, abortion, murder, exploitation, greed, family discord, anxiety, suicide, sexual assaults are all sins incompatible with peace. And while we'd like to sweep them under the rug, if we're honest, these are all sins which characterize our present age here in the United States, and the supposed age of peace. So we realize that the very best peace that this world can offer doesn't look all that impressive. And yet we as humans recognize that there is something intuitively wrong with that. That this is not the way that things should be. It's the reason that we desire and seek for justice. It's the reason we have governments. It's the reason we start things like the Peace Corps and neighborhood watches. We intuitively grasp that there should be peace on earth, and it bothers us that there isn't. 
And so it is at this point, dear brothers and sisters, that the Christian faith not only shows us the path to peace, but it tells us why there isn't peace now. And the two are related, and sweet little baby Jesus has a unique role to play. So, why isn't there peace? Well, God's word in Genesis 3 tells us that in creation, God made mankind in a world of peace. And that if we would trust and obey him, that we could maintain that peace forever. God had our good in mind. He gave Adam and Eve an entire garden of yes and a single tree of no. And he asked them to trust him. At some point, they decided that their wisdom was greater than his. They believed the lie of the serpent ate of the forbidden tree, and so they disobeyed and disowned their creator. They declared rebellion against their God. And so God expelled them from the garden, he expelled them from his presence, and he expelled them from his peace. Because eternal life and peace can only be found in fellowship with our creator. Because sin entered into the once perfect world, that peace was no longer possible. And so when, enter, when sin entered the world, we lost peace on earth, that much is clear. But not only did we lose peace on earth, we lost peace with God. In fact, the Bible says we became enemies of God. Uh, it's not unlike in the West, we've seen citizens of Western nations leave and declare their allegiance to groups like ISIS. They have rebelled against their rightful government, and they have become enemies of the state. Uh, they've renounced their citizenship. And so it is with us when we sin against our God, we are renouncing him. We are declaring our allegiance to this world and not to God. And so there is a hostility with God. Uh, we are at enmity with God. And it is precisely this problem that God, in his love, sent Jesus to fix. He came so that we might have peace with God. So Christ's first advent was made necessary by human sin, by your sin and my sin, because our sin places us at enmity with God. We don't have peace with God on our own. And though this truth is as apparent as the lack of peace in our world... Uh, we sure do try to suppress it, don't we? Uh, we try to deny our feelings of guilt for the things we have or have not done in life. Uh, we seek professional help to try and escape the nagging feeling of our guilt and shame uh, to the point where we are the most medicated society in history. We distract ourselves from this truth constantly with entertainment and streaming services and video games. We just desperately want to be able to sleep at night without engaging with our own thoughts. <laughs> it's no wonder that our culture has devolved Christmas uh, into a fat man flying around on reindeer giving toys to kids. Because if we accept Christmas for what it truly is, and what it truly represents, then we must accept the awful truth about ourselves that we stand justly condemned by a righteous and holy God. That, 
That is the reason for the incarnation. That is the reason for Christmas. God's incredible love for his enemies. There's a direct line between the manger and the cross on Golgotha. And neither makes sense without the other. Yes, Christmas represents God's love, but it is his love necessitated by his wrath against sin. Well, if we return to Genesis 3, right there at the end of the chapter, uh, we see that as they are being expelled from the garden and expelled from God's presence, God kills an animal to clothe them and to cover their guilt and shame. There's a price to be paid for sin, and that penalty, Romans tells us, is death. And all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God made sacrifices, according to the law, to cover their sins. They knew they could not approach a holy God without a blood sacrifice to forgive them. As Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But you see, these sacrifices were temporary. They had to be repeated all the time. It's kind of like bathing your kids. You know, you work hard to get them squeaky clean and dressed up and ready for church the night before. And uh, before you know it, you're on vacation and grandma takes them down to the beach and your daughter, at two years old, jumps right into the ocean, fully clothed in November. (laughs) Time for another bath. That's because we need a greater sacrifice to truly take away our sins. God had to become man to identify with us, to live as we were called to live, and to die in our place as a man. Christ became man, took on flesh to bear the wrath of God against men for our rebellion against him. And I don't even have to leave the Old Testament to prove that to you. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, a passage that you are almost certainly familiar with. We'll look at verses 2 and 3 first. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Pick up in verse 7. And this is referencing Christ, of course. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And here we have two categories from the New Testament, justification and forgiveness. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus will justify many, place his righteousness on them through faith. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. And we're going to go backwards to verse 5, because I just want to point out this lastly. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that what? Brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So even from the perspective of the Old Testament, this servant of God, this baby in a manger, this Christ Messiah brings us peace with God. Uh, but as we've established, there is no just, there's no peace without justice. He brings us peace through judgment. He brings us peace by bearing God's judgment for us, by taking our sins onto himself and paying the penalty for himself. He's like a physician who comes and heals you by absorbing your sin himself. It's kind of a weird thought. It's the best I can do. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why the incarnation of Christ is so exciting because it represents for us God's love demonstrated. It represents for us the end of our guilt and shame. It represents our reconciliation to God and our peace with God. A righteousness granted to us through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul on the other side of the cross can say this. We have a slide. Romans 5.1. He can say this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. We have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth so that you could have the peace with God that we lost in sin. He came to bear the burden for you. And this is why Paul can also say in chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No wrath remains for the follower of Jesus Christ. And if you repent and turn to him, this can be true of you if it is not already. So, if we're going to summarize our first half this morning, it is this. We are all guilty before God because of our sin. The penalty for that sin is death. And Jesus came and paid the penalty for you so that you could have peace with God and eternal life with him. This is the reason for Jesus' first advent. He came so that all who believe in him can have peace with God. And the church, since that time, has been proclaiming this good news to the ends of the earth. So Jesus brings peace with God. As we'll see again through Isaiah, Jesus also brings peace on earth. If Jesus accomplished peace with God by bearing, by bearing God's judgment for sinful humanity, in his second advent, his second coming, Jesus will bring peace on earth by bringing God's judgment 
against sinful humanity. Jesus' first coming made it possible for man to be made right with God, but we still live in a world under the effect of sin. It is not peaceful. And so we look forward to the second coming when he brings real and lasting peace. Well, we've already determined that this is something that humanity is incapable of doing on our own. Even if we're successful at ending active hostilities between people, we are very bad at establishing true justice. And as our activists like to say, so long as there is injustice, there will not be peace. That word justice is a buzzword right now. Uh, we all recognize that we, that we want justice. And when we see injustice, we yearn for it. When we see those who exploit uh, vulnerable women or children, when we see the swindlers who get rich by impoverishing others, when we think about all the thieves and robbers and burglars and war criminals and liars and murderers and adulterers and oppressors and con artists who have escaped justice here on earth, it is infuriating. It's unjust. Say, so, Pastor, that's a little much. I'm not out here crying out for justice. Well, what happens when somebody cuts you off on 95? Tell me about your, your feelings then. What happens when you get that spam call? Somebody trying to take your identity and you know that they've been successful with thousands of elderly people. If you're anything like me, you're probably ready to call down fire from heaven. We all recognize there's a need for justice in this world. Real peace requires perfect justice. And the fact of the matter is there is only one person who's qualified to bring that justice. There's only one person who was ever truly sinless. And yet despite his innocence and his righteousness, he was condemned by men. He himself faced the ultimate injustice by dying on the cross for those whose sin made his death necessary. In his first coming, Jesus bore the judgment so that we could be made righteous and forgiven. But in his second coming, this sacrificial lamb of God, this love of God incarnate brings the judgment of God against all sinners. And in doing so, he will establish perfect justice and perfect eternal peace. And this is objectively good news. It means that in the light of eternity, nobody gets away with anything. No one escapes God's justice. And while it may be good news in general, it could be bad news for you if you are not in Christ on that day. So let's take a look at Isaiah one last time. As we'll see, Isaiah not only prophesied Jesus' first coming, he also prophesied his second as did many other prophets. And their prophecies were confirmed and developed further in the New Testament. Pick up with me in chapter 11 of Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, 
the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So the first thing we see about this coming judge and king is that he is described as from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is King David's father. And so in saying this, this stump, which is uh, an image of Israel's monarchy, which is destroyed because of unbelief, when things look hopeless, when it looks like there's no chance of this monarchy returning He's saying here that though the monarchy is a stump, there will arise another son of Jesse, another son of David, a greater David, a king of kings, ruling in the place of David. You say, well, pastor, how do we know that this person is Jesus? doesn't say Jesus here. Couldn't it be someone else? Well, it's a great question. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, when the angel was speaking to Mary. He said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will what? Give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So the angel is speaking to Mary before Jesus is born. He's saying, by the way, this prophesied Messiah, this stump, this shoot from the stump of Jesse is going to be your baby. It's incredible to think that this is being fulfilled in real time before Mary. If you keep reading, you realize, yeah, she gets really excited about this and sings this glorious song, the Magnificat. Well, back to Isaiah. What does this king who is also a judge. What does, this, what does he look like? Well, first in verse 2, Isaiah eleven two, we see that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be fully dependent on the Spirit of God. And in verses 3 to 4, we see how it is he will bring judgment in his kingdom. Verse 3 shows us that unlike our fallen world, unlike the imperfect justice which we have in our world, his justice will be perfect. He will not be partial Or let the guilty go unpunished. And he will not show favoritism to either rich or poor. But rather, in verse 4, we see that he will judge with righteousness and equity or fairness. He will judge fairly with perfect righteousness because he is the definition of righteousness. Having endured injustice himself, he will be perfectly objective and bring about Perfect justice. And then we get this sort of weird image as he actually um, executes his justice. Uh, It's an ancient text and it kind of strikes us as odd, but it, it says this. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. You see, this 
king who comes in judgment against sin and sinners. This king has no need for an army or police force to bring about his judgment. His word alone is sufficient because it is the word of God. This king who died for sinners now ultimately brings judgment against those who rejected the free offer of grace through Jesus Christ. Well, what does this justice accomplish? What does this bringing of justice on earth create? Well, let's keep reading in verses 6 to 9. It says this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. point of these verses is this. God's justice brings real peace on earth. It's figurative and poetic language and what he's getting at is that the justice and the peace which Jesus brings is so expansive and so all-encompassing that it extends far beyond reconciliation of mankind even into the animal kingdom, and even into all of creation. The peace of God knows no bounds. It is complete. It is total. Uh, Look at the images it's giving us. The, The wolf predator is lying with the lamb prey. The leopard and the young goat. The calf is hanging out with a lion. And a little child is leading the lion by the hand like it was a chubby pet hamster, rodent of unusual size. And one of the most heart-pounding images, particularly for me as a father of an infant, is a horrifying image, an infant playing on top of a cobra's nest. And you're just fear-stricken thinking about it, and yet that infant is perfectly safe. Because there is a perfect peace under the dominion of King Jesus. The curse of Genesis 3 has been lifted. And in this day, God will have conquered sin and death completely and brought about perfect peace. We're not going to go there, but the New Testament develops this even further. This peaceful dominion of Christ is called the new creation. It is a renewed and restored creation without sin and without death, sickness, or sadness. It is the very epitome of all happy endings. And in this place, those who have been washed by the blood of Christ will dwell in the presence of their God, the God who loves them for all eternity and perfect peace. They will abound in joy 
and love and in fellowship with their creator. And that, brothers and sisters, that is why Jesus had to come. Because God desired to bring sinners into fellowship with him. Peace with God and peace on earth. That is the ultimate meaning of Christmas. If you'd like further reading on that theme, you can go read Revelation 20 and 21 at home with your friends or family tonight. Well, maybe you're here this morning and I've just ruined Christmas for you. Never again will you be able to sit back and chug some eggnog, watch a Charlie Brown Christmas without also thinking about the judgment of God. Uh, you'll never be able to look at cute little baby Jesus in the nativity without thinking about his sacrificial death on a cross. The immense love of God for sinners that would drive him to die in their place and rise again from the grave. Well, if this is true, then I am glad that I ruined Christmas for you. That brings me a great deal of pleasure. In some way, I feel like I've started to uncommercialize the incarnation of our Savior. But even more than that, I hope that in considering the love of Christ this morning, that your own love for Christ has grown in its depth and in its warmth. If you are in Christ this morning, it is because you recognize that the judgment described in Isaiah 11, 4 and 5 is the judgment that you deserve. And yet, because the Prince of Peace died in your place, it is not the judgment that you receive. That's about as good a reason to celebrate Christmas as I can think of. But this morning, if you are not in Christ, uh, I am so thankful that you're here. But you're living here in this world full of hostility and conflict and sin, and you're yearning for, for real peace and real justice. Let me encourage you that what you are yearning for can only be found in Christ Jesus. He offers you peace with God right now. A peace that transcends understanding. But also know this, that God will bring about perfect peace. And every sinner will have to face the light of his justice. And you can choose to face that justice on your own, or you can rely on the one who faced it for you. The baby lying in the manger, who went to the cross. The king of all creation, who humbled himself out of love for you. The prince of peace. Let's pray.